I gotta tie my shoe. <laughs> Trying to show off my new shoes. You guys were thinking it anyway. Wow, those are some cool shoes. Brian actually commented on my shoes last week, so if I get a good comment from Brian, I'm feeling pretty good about myself there. When we started Novation 12 years ago, that's unbelievable. Like we were were thinking, uh, Tom Fields and I were talking about, you know, little, little kids, little babies, they're now 12. He's got a kid going into middle school, and when they were here, she was just a baby. So it's crazy to think about how fast time goes by. But when, when we were dreaming and casting vision for this church called Novation, and what, what was it going to be like, there was pretty much three simple things we wanted to build a church on. First and foremost, Jesus. King Jesus, He's the shepherd. We all follow Him. And in the context of following Jesus, we do it together in community. And relationships. As I look around the room, I see all the, the, the relationships and deep relationships, people doing life together, and new people coming into this church and finding friendships and finding what they've been looking for. The next thing that was in the vision was that we would major on the majors when it comes to doctrine, that we would keep the Apostles' Creed as our guide, and then all the secondary things that, that flow out of, out of having good doctrine and sound doctrine, if they're secondary issues, we can discuss, we can debate, but we weren't going to divide over secondary issues. And I would say for the most part, that's been very true, and I feel God's grace when it comes to that. And then lastly, I always dreamed of having a church where Christian liberty was truly practiced scripturally, that we um, gave liberty and freedom to live our lives under the guidance of Jesus, and that we weren't going to be legalistic and we weren't going to be licentious. We were going to walk in that tough, messy middle sometimes where there is some disagreements and some discussion that happens through that, but again, not dividing over it. Christian liberty is the freedom from God to do what you wish on any matter that Jesus or the Scriptures do not address without fear of persecution from other believers. That's what Christian liberty is. If Jesus didn't talk about it, if the Scriptures don't talk about it, and it's that gray area, He gave us freedom to make decisions and wise choices. What Christian liberty is not is it's not an excuse to violate black and white commands and principles in Scripture when when they are black and white. Christians have struggled with Christian liberty for 2,000 years. You read in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 is such a glorious chapter. God added to their numbers. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. Two or three chapters later, they're arguing about which widows were going to get fed first, the, the Greeks or the, or the Jewish widows. It's funny how quickly that happens. Some issues over the years have actually been pretty funny to me. I read a, a couple of them. In, late in the 16th century, a number of priests approached Pope Clement VIII in the hope that he would ban the use of coffee. 
They presumed that since the Muslims had substituted the holiest of drinks, wine, with coffee, it was obviously the work of the devil. They wanted its use forbidden, but the Pope, he was a fair man, and he ordered a cup of this concoction so he could inspect it for himself. After drinking and contemplating the cup, he was said to have exclaimed, Why? This Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use of it. We shall fool Satan by baptizing it and making it a truly Christian beverage. And we've we've been pounding it ever since, crushing that coffee. In his uh, book, The Grace Awakening, Chuck Swindoll Uh, If you ever want to read a great book about how to give grace to one another in The Grace Awakening, such a good book, he tells a story about a missionary family. They were in some part of the world where they couldn't get peanut butter. And so um, they would have people like bring peanut butter to them if they visited or have it shipped to them. And all the other missionaries that were there told them that they shouldn't have peanut butter. That it was actually a sin because nobody else had peanut butter, so they should sacrifice and not have peanut butter. When they refused to not comply, they got kicked out of the mission field. Imagine going back to your home church. Why did you get kicked out of the mission field? What did you do? We ate peanut butter. Like <laughs> That would be so goofy, right? And yet we're all guilty of it with our our little hang-ups that we get sometimes towards each other. We are in a series that's going to conclude next week in Paul's letter to the Romans. We've called it Not Ashamed because Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. And the first 11 chapters we saw very doctrinal, very theological, very positional, very mystical. And then he shifts in chapters 12 through 16 to being very practical. How do we live out this this new position that we see ourselves in Christ and how God sees us? And Romans 14 gets to the heart of the matter of Christian liberty. Gets right, right to it. And they were this whole thing of whether you should eat meat, sacrifice to idols or not. This is the the liberty that some were partaking in and others were very stumbled by their eating of the meat. We make a huge mistake when we reduce the Christian life to a set of do's and don'ts, rules, expectations that aren't orders from the Scripture or from, from Jesus Himself. And it never fails when you speak to someone who's been turned off by Jesus or what they thought of Jesus or the church, it's always because of judgmental, self-righteous Christians who make judgments on their behalf that aren't black and white in Scripture. And I, I know that was the case for me when I was a teenager. And it you know, took God's miraculous power to bring me back into it after being kind of hurt by that. Jesus understood this re- uh, rejection the, the uh, self-righteous of his day rejected him. He broke their rules. He broke their man-made traditions. He never broke the law of Moses, 
But he did break the traditions of men and the people who actually ended up crucifying him. In his day, Judaism had four, four different uh, sets of folks, if you will. I didn't want to say the word sex, S-E-C-T-S, because then I might mislead somebody. So S-E-C-T-S. All right, thank you. Of these four, you had the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were legalists who would avoid culture. Culture was bad because they didn't obey the, the kosher laws and all that kind of stuff. Then you had the Sadducees. They were the liberalists who blended into culture. They just blended right in. Then you had the zealots who were extremists who wanted to rule over culture. They wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. Then you had the Aseans, and they were separatists who withdrew from culture. Um, they literally went out and lived in the desert and just removed themselves from any possible influence. So when you're talking about liberty, Christian freedom, making wise choices, remember two terms. One term is that two extremes that we want to avoid. One is legalism. And legalism is this. It's commanding something of believers that Scripture doesn't or condemning something that Scripture doesn't condemn. That's legalism. Liberalism, or maybe we could call it license, is living carelessly by making choices in the name of liberty that directly violate God's will for us. Because whatever God's commanded for us, and I'll talk to every young person in here for a second. When God tells us to do something or not to do it, it's because He's a good Father. And He has your best interest and best life at heart. Some of us older learn that the hard way, and sadly, most people learn that the hard way. But when you take Him at His word, He promises you the best kind of life there is. So liberty then is the freedom given by God to make wise choices concerning gray areas um, of Scripture without pressure from other believers. I'll tell you a funny story. When I first became a Christian, October 26, 1992, 31 years ago, that's crazy, but I got old quick. That went by fast, too. Don't blink. Um, I came out of a music scene where I was in a band and I had long curly hair and 80s hair. It was hilarious. And I, when I became a Christian, I just decided, no one told me to do this, that I was going to only listen to Christian lyric music, Christian, Christian music, Christian lyrics. Because music isn't Christian in itself, it's the lyrics that make something Christian. And I chose that for myself. I wasn't being a legalist. It was just for me. And sometimes people make decisions in their walk that are best for them. And we, we shouldn't judge them for that if that's their conviction. Well, I basically skipped most of the 90s because of, of that. So I actually got set free and went back to the music of the 90s. And you children of the 90s had some pretty cool music that you listened to. <laughs> And I got free to make wise choices myself over 31 years of what kind of music I was going to listen to. Because music's an important thing to me. So fast forward this 
at least 15 years or more, 16 years into my walk, I went to a concert. And uh, Janelle and I and some friends of ours went to a concert and we saw somebody from our old church. Hey, Pastor Scott, how's it going? Doing good. That was a great concert. Yeah, it was a great concert. Well, later I go to find out that through a mutual acquaintance that this person said, yeah, I saw Pastor Scott at this concert. And I was shocked to see him there. Not I was shocked to see myself there for him, but I was shocked to see Pastor Scott there, the holy man. And it just shows you like where we need to continue to have grace with each other, let each other mature, let each other grow, let each other make some mistakes. If we're not violating directly commands from Scripture, then we have to walk this, this tight road here, so to speak. So let's see what Paul has to say. He says this, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not to have quarrels over opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person values one day over another. Another values every day the same. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And the one who eats does so with regard to the Lord. For he gives thanks to God... And the one who does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living." So I titled today's message, Guidelines, Guardrails, and Getting Along. Isn't that catchy? (laughs) Guidelines, Guardrails, and Getting Along. And I believe in this passage that I just read, there is a guideline and a guardrail for us getting along and caring for one another in the household of God. A guideline is something that directs you. Like if you're drawing something and you have an outline, it sure helps a guy who's very unartistic like myself actually draw a picture. Or you're driving on the highway, you have lines that tell you when the road's going to curve or whatever. That's what that's there for. So guideline number one, what does Paul say? He says to defend the person who is weak in the faith. Defend the person who's weak in the faith. Paul is saying not to judge A believer who does not have the same freedom that you do. I think that's so important. Don't judge someone who doesn't have the same freedom that you do. Why did the the one who who struggled with the eating of the meat sacrifice to idols, why did they struggle with that? Because Paul was saying, listen, it's just meat. It doesn't matter where you bought it or got it from. 
It's probably got in mind Jewish believers in Christ who, for the Hebrew, idolatry is the big issue of the whole Old Testament, right? It's the struggle of the Jews. So I'm not going to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And the whole issue of meat and things strangled and blood and all the things that were part of the kosher lifestyle, they're not going to do that. And maybe you had you know, Gentile Christians going, just eat the meat, man. It's good. You know, it makes, got a barbecue going and you, you start smelling that. He's probably like, just eat the meat. Well, that's wrong to do. Peter went through this in Acts 10 as a kosher Jewish person in upbringing. Peter gets the sheet, if you remember, that comes down. He gets this vision and it's all a bunch of unclean animals that you're not supposed to eat according to the law Um, the Levitical law for the Jewish people. And the voice of the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, what? Nothing's ever passed through these lips that's unclean. I'm not going to do that. And he says, don't call unclean that which I've called clean or made clean. So I think the guideline here that directs us all as followers of Jesus is love. Would love require me to set aside my liberty for the sake of my fellow believer who maybe has a weaker conscience in in a gray area. It might be temporary, right? It depends on the type of relationship or friendship that you have. But the guideline there is love. And then there's a guardrail. Guardrail number one. A guardrail protects your car from going off the highway, especially in the mountains, right? Um, I remember back in COVID when we couldn't do a whole lot, and Janelle and I took a drive up through Golden Gate Canyon. And there's a part where you can like peek over, pull over, and you can peek over and see how far down it is on this particular mountain. So let me show you a, a picture one at a time here. So that's just actual thing. Can you see a car way down there? in the middle of the screen, not the rock. Go to the next one. We'll bring it more into focus. And next one. See that car down there? You can go to the last one too. So who knows how old that car is? But it was pre-guardrails, guaranteed, because they now have guardrails. And that guardrail is to protect us. God... And His Word has given us guardrails to protect us. Not to throw a drag into our life or anything like that, but for our own good. God loves us. I believe Paul's underlying uh, point is that he, he gives us guardrails to live by as well. What's this guardrail? Distinguish between true holiness and cultural holiness. True holiness, if you want to know what it is, is Jesus. How He thought, how He spoke, and what He did in His behavior. True holiness is Jesus. Cultural holiness is we, we reduce it to a set of lists and things that come to in, in our little community or our nation or what region of the country you live in or what nation you live in. Traditions that become rules making a neutral issue a main issue that's a cultural holiness my cousin was a pastor in the south and i remember he came out and visited uh, us and i was 
a pastor as well, and we were with uh, my senior pastor, Pastor George. And I think George and I were either in shorts or because it was summertime or whatever, and he just said, man, he said, my pastor would not be caught dead even in the grocery store without a three-piece suit on. I thought, I'm glad I don't live down there. Dang, that would, that's tough for me. It took me long enough to get set free to wear shorts to church in the summer, so I'm not going backwards in that. Um, it's cultural holiness. In, in the Dominican Republic, it, we go to some of the places in the, in the villages and some of the cultural holiness comes out. They see some of our people who have tattoos and they'll say, you can't be a Christian. No, I'm a Christian. It's a, it's a cross or it's a Bible verse. No, no, you can't be a Christian. In their mind, a Christian, a true Christian cannot have a tattoo. I get it. Some people don't like tattoos for whatever reason and season of life that you're in. It has nothing to do with holiness. Unless somebody's doing something like vulgar or, or whatever, that's a whole other story. Um, people can get so caught up in, in, in what they think is holiness, they push people away. And they don't even live in any kind of liberty themselves. I remember my brother telling me a story when his youngest daughter was really little. Um, he had a friend who was really stuck in legalism. And he told me that, that this guy called him and Mike answered the phone. And he said, what are you doing? Mike said, well, um, I'm playing a game of Blue's Clues with my daughter. Blue's Clues is that little cartoon and it was some kind of card game. And he said, the guy on, on the other end goes, Mike, wake up. I'm playing blues clues with my daughter. This might be the holiest thing I can do all day long is to sit and hang out with my daughter. But when that slippery slope of legalism, you continue to feed that, you get off track. We got to always remember and care for one another and walk in what is true holiness, and that is Jesus. Jesus, not our lists or our preferences or our agendas. Jesus is what holiness is like. So for Jesus... Um, holiness is not customs, traditions, or hang-ups. As a matter of fact, walking in true holiness got Jesus crucified by cultural holiness. Say that again. Walking in true holiness got Jesus crucified by cultural holiness. They couldn't see Him. He violated things that they thought were black and white that they had created that God had never intended for the commands to be like that. It's really marks of maturity. As we grow in our Christian liberty, we're growing in our maturity and how we walk with Jesus and how we help others. Paul continues, But as for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well, why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? He's always got both ends in mind here. He's got the person who's judging, and he's got the person who's judging the person whose conscience is weak. For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. I think guideline number two here. Guideline number two. 
Don't forget, there is only one who can rightly judge. This will help us walk and get along and walk in freedom and walk in a liberty and enjoy life and enjoy the life that Jesus gave us. There's only one who can rightly judge. We don't get to judge because we don't have all the facts. We don't have all the information. We don't have everybody's life experience. And so that's why we don't get to judge because we also bring a bias to the table, right? We, we, we bring our own hang-up, so to speak, or whatever. And we expect others to agree with us. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. When Jesus said, he said humorously, why do you try to get the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own eye? That's probably pretty funny. I wonder if he had like a big stick in his hand or something and put it up next to his eye. He's saying, how are you going to be able to do that? Jesus is saying there, when you see something in someone's life, don't forget you have your own issues. And maybe even assume, you know, it's worse at times. Because we look at somebody and we think, oh man. And we, we, we begin to judge rather than have compassion. And I know that's hard for us to do. But learning, learning not to compare ourselves is a key to getting along. We tend to compare ourselves to others because it makes us feel good if somebody has a bigger issue than I do. And, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. Comparing is a very terrible uh, thing to do in our walks because we all know at the end of the day, we all got our own stuff that we're dealing with. And I'm in that long line with everybody as well. We all got sin and issues that God is working on and sanctifying each one of us. To say there's only one who can judge does not mean there's not accountability. Of course there's accountability. That's all through Paul's epistles as well. But accountability is not judgment and condemnation. Accountability is out of love. So we are to take care of of one another. He continues on. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to the one who thinks something is unclean, to that person it is unclean. For if because of food your brother or sister is hurt, you are no longer walking in accordance with love. Do not destroy with your choice of food that person for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. There's that duality going on there. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the one who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by other people. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the person who eats and causes offense. Remember the context here. It is, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother or sister stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is the one who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But the one who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Guardrail number two. And again, a guardrail is to protect, in this sense, a guardrail is to protect our freedom, 
but to also protect our brother or sister's conscience. And I would say this guardrail is this. Do guard your conscience and your fellow believer's conscience. That's our loving responsibility. How do we do that? How do we do that? Because we're, we're doing this thing called church. We're the body of Christ. We have disagreements. We have different points of view. Sometimes different interpretations of things. How do we guard our own freedom, which I believe Jesus wants us to, Paul in Galatians, you know, rebuked the Judaizers for coming and spying on their liberty. Like they came in and said, you shouldn't be doing that to, to uh, the church that Paul founded. How do we do that? Well, I think there's six questions that we can ask ourselves that will kind of will guide us into um, guarding our own freedom and making sure we're not teetering towards sin in, in license, but that we're guarding our freedom to enjoy life, and then we also guard our fellow brother and sister's conscience. The first question to ask, these will come up on the screen, can I do this, meaning can I eat this, drink this, participate in this, go to this concert, watch this movie, you fill in the blank, okay? When I say can I do this, you fill in the blank of whatever is on your mind right now. Can I do this in faith and a clear conscience? If you're free and it doesn't violate Scripture, it doesn't violate what Jesus has had to say, has to say about it, you're free to make a wise choice. Can I do this? Second question, can I do this or receive this to the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Can you go to a concert to the glory of God? Can you cheer for your football team to the glory of God? Can I continue to be a Rockies fan to the glory of God? That's the only choice I have in this matter. Can I do this or receive this while giving thanks to God? Whatever it is, can I say, God, thank you for this. This is blessing. And then, should I keep... Should I keep my freedom between myself and God? That's what he said there. If you have liberty, sometimes you might just keep that between you and God. We don't have to go brag about our freedom to, to everybody. And sometimes it might be wisdom to, to enjoy your freedom more privately or with other believers who enjoy that freedom. And that's, uh, the issues of conscience are very, very difficult to navigate because what I think might be wrong for you, you might think is right for you. Now, where it's black and white, we're going to be black and white. Does that make sense? That's important. There are certain things, it's just boom, the scriptures are clear about this. Sometimes they're not. And then the last question to ask is, am I trying to justify this thing I'm receiving or doing, my position, by taking scripture out of context? I've heard some people lately try to justify sexual sin with Scripture. Um, no. Like, it's very clear. God knows what's best for us when it comes to that. And when He tells us to avoid sexual immorality of all kinds, sex outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, it's wrong. And there's no justification for it um, we just have to believe and trust the Lord. Now, it's difficult. I get it. And that wasn't even in my notes either. I just popped in here. So. But 
when it's black and white, be black and white. Let's don't try to twist Scripture into it. So, stand with me. We're going to take communion. And as we prepare to sing and then take communion, I want you to remember this. The Word of God and the living Word Jesus, who is the living Word of God, is always about getting us to repent. Now, repentance is a good word. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change your mind, change your thinking. Change your your thinking about God, about yourself, about others, and about life. It's always pointing us to Jesus and the kind of life that He wants for us. Repentance is also a change of direction. If we're caught up in a habit or something that we know is not God's will, repentance is a change of direction. It's a willingness to fight urges. It's a willingness to fight sin and and temptation. Knowing that God knows what's best for us, believing that God knows what's best for us, rather than caving into it. So I would say this. If you're caught up in legalism, Repent of trying to control others. Repent of that. If you're living carelessly, repent and trust His guardrails and His boundaries. Trust that He knows what's best for you. And look out for each other. Love one another. And enjoy your freedom that Jesus has given to us. Now where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He died for our freedom, that we would be free from the power of sin, death, and the evil one. He's victorious. That's what we're getting ready to celebrate by taking the bread and taking the juice and doing what he told believers to do, is to remember his victory. Remember what he's done for us. Remember our liberty and guard one another. So what we're going to do is there's some communion stuff in the back there. If you want to kind of make your way down this aisle and this aisle, you should be able to not get uh, plugged up there, so to speak. So why don't you go get the elements, take them back to your seat. We're going to sing, and then we'll take it together as a family in just a minute.
we're agreeing with Jesus that he is Savior and that he's Lord. We don't make him that. He already is. Faith is agreeing, Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the Lord of all. And discipleship to Jesus is, I'm going to do what you say to do. I'm going to put into practice the kind of life that you tell me to live. Guess what, though? We all fail, right? And we all need to be reminded of grace every day his grace is sufficient in our weakness and his power is made perfect when we understand how weak we really are Paul says for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you 
that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had uh, given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Put your hands out in front of you as a posture of of receiving. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. May you be aware of His presence through His Spirit. May you be aware of the love of the Father. May you be aware of the goodness of God as you leave from here. May you walk in the liberty and freedom that Jesus purchased for you. May you make wise choices. May you walk in love and in faith. May you guard your brother and sister's conscience. May you guard your brother and sister in thought, word, and deed. May we love one another. Lord Jesus, may we love one another and forgive one another and care for one another through the grace that you provide. May each of you walk in wholeness. Wholeness and integrity and joy and peace and hope. The true gifts that you give us, Jesus, as we count down to Christmas and celebrate your birth, your gifts to us through salvation was to become new creations. And to have peace and joy and hope in this life and forever in the life to come. Lord, we give you our cares and our worries and our fears and our struggles. Lord, your your back and shoulders are big and strong enough to carry carry all of us. Thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for each person as they're growing in their walk with you and in their faith, Lord, that you love your kids. You're not mad at us. You love us. You're not frustrated with us. Thank you for that. Thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength today. In Jesus' name, amen.